from the gloomy, mostly Euclidean confines of Castle Gormagon on the lofty, wind-blasted heights of the Plateau of Ang. I am that pole, rapscallion to the Tsar, and this is Radio Gormagon. Tonight is the last episode of the first season of Radio Gormagon, where you ask the questions and we answer. It's like a big party up in here. What's the first question today, Gort? Or Gorte? Or Gote? Gote. The first question comes from our one of our faves, Neva. She asks, why is GP so sexy? Spelled S-E-C-K-S-E-E. Well, is, first, I'd like to lead with that is the correct spelling of the word sexy, as we all know, in pewterese, which is the official language, the official low language of the Gormagons. You know, really, my sexiness is, you know, a combination of things. Genetics, um, the deal I made with Satan, long walks on the golf course, chasing balls that I hit in all different directions, you know, and my, and my daily regimen and my diet of, you know, pretty much anything with saturated fats and alcohol. I credit that with my sexiness. You know, that's, that's really where it comes from. You know, did God give it to me? Did I find it on the street? You know, did I bargain with gypsy ladies for it? You can ask other people that. I'm not going to give you the answer to that. But that's pretty much where it came from and how it happened. You know, but we're all, I got to say, we're all, all of the gormagons are very sexy in their own way. You know, we just have, you know, it's like the Spice Girls. You're going to find one that you like. You know, I'm not sporty Spice. I'm more kind of like baby spice, sort of pudgy, used to be blonde, you know, the least attractive of them all. You know, Gort's more posh spice, you know, and, and Zara is the militant lesbian spice. I don't know which one that was, but, you know, I don't know. And there's angry spice, which is, which is Volgi, 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 I don't know. He, he, he's got to get a new name. That's all I got to say. If I can't pronounce it or I can't keep it in my head, who knows? And then, you know, Mandy and Doc, you know, I, they're just like the funny spices, whichever they are, like cinnamon and cardamom, kind of like stripper names, but not quite. So, yeah. So we're all, you know, all six of us are sexy guys, but, you know, it, it's nice to hear from Neva. And thank you very much for the question, Neva, that, you know, that I am the sexiest of all the Gormagons. He is not. And seek help immediately. You want to go to an emergency room because whatever he has slipped into your drink is also affecting the spelling center of your brain. Let me let our listeners in on a secret. Sexy, S-E-C-K-S-E-E, is a Finnish word that Pewter has appropriated to trick our followers on Twitter into believing that he means sexy, S-E-X-Y. But in reality, well, I've been sworn to secrecy. That's S-E-K-R-I-S-E-E. Kieran Eleison's question is, if a train leaves Philadelphia traveling westbound at 30 miles an hour, Maybe his question is, if a train leaves, well, any train fleeing Philadelphia would have to avoid being disabled by hooligans tossing D-cell batteries. If he's questioning the speed, which is velocity, one must remember that velocity is the first derivative of position with respect to time. The second derivative is acceleration, change in velocity. And the third derivative is the rate of change <clears throat> of acceleration, which is technically known as jerk. Speaking of, here's the czar. Of course. Kieran is aware that the train never actually arrived. 
This is in reference to the terribly cold night in February 1958 that the westbound flyer departed at 11.45 p.m. from Philadelphia, unaware that its passenger manifest contained Dawood al-Misri, an Egyptian trader of questionable reputation, who boarded the train with a mysterious package. When the porter stopped him at the steps of car six, al-Misri was loath to part with the simple wooden crate he carried. The porter, witnesses on the platform confirmed, said that he would personally lock it in the baggage car. Nervously, Al-Misri agreed, although he planned to retrieve the item once the train left the station at 30 miles per hour, heading towards Cleveland. However, the porter, his name never revealed by investigators, did not lock the package up. He was ignorant of the fact that it was rumored to contain the ashes of Ashman Balmenheket, the cursed high priest under the wicked pharaoh Tamen Ra. The pharaoh himself laid down a curse upon Menhekit for violating the very natural laws of the gods themselves by summoning the jackal army of Anubis to slaughter the pharaoh's charioteers outside Ashkana. The curse decreed that the ashes of Menhekit must remain sealed or the very maw of the underworld would be unleashed upon anyone foolish enough to defy the edict of the pharaoh. Well, did the porter open the canopic jar inside? All we know for sure is that the train, which should have passed another train traveling 50 miles per hour that departed from Pittsburgh 300 miles away, did not pass the westbound flyer three and three-quarter hours later, and no trace of the flyer, its passengers, or its curious cargo ever arrived in Cleveland, resulting in one of the greatest unsolved train travel mysteries of the 20th century. So, if a train leaves Philadelphia traveling westbound at 30 miles an hour, there's not enough information in that question because it doesn't specify whether we're talking about 30th Street Station or Suburban Station. There's a 10 minute difference between uh, those two stations so your arrival times going westbound will be shorter if you leave from 30th Street Station. Our Ninja Babe writes in, how's it possible that after almost 10 years of internet friendship we haven't met? She knows full well, however, it is her fault. We had a date one time to meet up in person instead of merely exchanging invoices and so forth in the mail. So I go to the restaurant where I'm supposed to meet her. I sit down and two hours later, nobody's shown up. I get up, I leave. I get a call from her later. Hey, that was really rude. I said, what do you mean rude? You were the one who didn't show up. She said, are you kidding? I was sitting there in the restaurant. You came in, you sat down, you didn't say a word to me. I said, you weren't sitting there. She says, I was sitting right across from you at the table. I said, what were you wearing? She said, you know, my standard ninja outfit and so forth. I said, were you using your arts of concealment? She's like, well, maybe, I don't know. It's hard to turn those off. You're like, you sat across from me for two hours and you didn't say a word. She said, well, I just thought you were being rude by not talking to me. And then you started checking your phone. And so we have been in the same room, but we haven't actually met. So... Hopefully, we can resolve that at some point in the future when, you know, uh, the Ninja Babe's incredible powers of concealment aren't getting in the way. Also, it's possible she's kind of short. I may have been looking over her head. You never know. Well, Emily, you live in a different time zone than Dr. J, and he doesn't get out very much. And besides, Mrs. Dr. J doesn't let him date. Pseudonymous friend Nicolas Bourbaki writes... Where did y'all go after high school where I gather you met? How did you keep in touch? Well, Peter decamped uh, for the Great Plains, and for a while, Gort and I uh, resided in our home prefecture, uh, which was nice. And 
how we kept in touch was largely through the now archaic technologies of telephone, which is sort of like an analog wire-carried uh, version of voice messaging over text, and letters, which are like long text messages, but transferred to paper and conveyed by uh, government minions to distant parts of the country. We did, of course, visit each other. Uh, and I should note for Mr. Bourbaki that these were uh, surjective, injective, or bijective visits. Interesting story that I headed off to the wilds of Worcester, Massachusetts to attend college um, at a Jesuit school up there, Holy Cross. And the other two can speak for themselves. We'll pitch it over to them shortly. But we didn't, we kept in touch on the breaks mostly. We wrote occasionally, very occasionally. And then Gort, who was the technolog technological guy, introduced me to what was called, then called the interwebs. And we had a Vax dummy terminal in the choir office. And he said, this is how you do it. And I think he had to mail me instructions on how to do it. And I typed it in and sent him an email. It was the first email I ever sent in my life was to Gort at his school, which I'm not going to name, but I will pitch it over to him so that he can tell you because he is our resident expert on that. Peter's right. As he went north, Volgi went west, Gorty went south. So we kind of all ran away from each other. But we stayed in touch uh, while I was at my highly technical college getting all smart with computer stuff. Don't touch my .org. We did try the email thing when the interwebs was just starting and tried doing some actual handwriting letters and actually used phones for phone conversation. It was a novel concept back then. Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to take this a little differently, uh, what we did after high school. Uh, well, I went to high school in the very late part of the 13th century, I did not know uh, Volgi or Pewter or Gorty uh, in high school. Uh, I actually had my own entire little universe that I occupied uh, up in the plains, the steppes of Russia, and I didn't really get to know them until much later. I think this story is all on our, our PDF on, on the site, is it not, how we all met? I call her Neva because there's a street in Chicago with that name, but she goes by the name Pip and Baby who asks, why is a baker's dozen 13? Well, this is one of my favorite etymology questions because it shows how a simple, familiar word can change its meaning over time. In the year 1230, before the Tsar was even born, a baker of the dark arts, Ernst Galmond, who practiced the black-hearted confections of hell itself, donuts glazed with human skin, blood-filled punchki, scare claws, condemned by the burger of hysteria, Galman summoned a coven of twelve fondant witches who tore apart the burger and his family. A priest, St. Joachim of Vister, was summoned. He went into the bakery and requested a dozen small cakes. While the coven and the baker worked on the order, Joachim secretly sanctified the ground around the bakery, which trapped the baker and his witches inside as they dare not touch the sanctified ground with their feet. The priest burned down the bakery with them trapped inside, and all that was left in the smoking ruins were thirteen small cakes. And to this day, we commemorate the destruction of the bakery by selling thirteen instead of twelve in a baked dozen. Well, what other number would you want it to be? That's because in medieval Europe, the Baker's Guild was largely dominated by Albigensians who were trying to signal to their fellow people their noncompliance with the uh, creedal order of Christianity. Maybe. 
Couldn't the Mandarin have answered one or two questions between band trips? Stud Puppy 73 writes in, why is ancient spelled wrong on your website homepage? Uh, actually, it is not misspelled. The word is ancient, and it is spelled correctly, I believe. Volgi, do you want to provide some detail? It is, in fact, not spelled incorrectly. That's the spelling that showed up in the 18th century when, through our first major breach in uh, operational security, the Gormagons became known to the public. Uh, the spelling with the T, I believe, dates from the 15th century and dropped off somewhere when people got a little more careful with the classical precedents. So it's not wrong. It's just different. Well, we could always count on the Volgi for something deep and profound. Thanks. You know, I was going to answer this one. Uh, favorite brisket recipe. Actually, very traditional. 50% uh, salt, 50% pepper. Uh, black pepper, uh, sprinkled on the meat, uh, rubbed all around. Uh, I do trim the fat cap down to about a quarter of an inch um, and uh, slow cook that guy very, very slow uh, for many, many hours. Uh, the trick is uh, I have a temperature probe I use for brisket that has a low point and a high point alarm, and I set the low point for about 185 and the high point at 190. Um, right when the deepest portion of that meat hits 190, I'm taking that off the smoker. Uh, as far as wood, I'm going to go with uh, probably two to three pieces of hickory and one piece of mesquite because, um, you know, mesquite tastes good with brisket, but too much and it tastes like uh, you, you dragged your meat through an ashtray. So uh, I like to cut that with some uh, hickory. Uh, oak is good too, by the way, for, for brisket. The Tsar and I are on the same page. Keep it simple and let the flavor of the meat win out. About half the time I use a yellow mustard layer to adhere a 50-50 blend of salt and pepper. Cook it on low and slow over hickory or oak. Mesquite does get very bitter easily, so be careful using that. Mrs. Gorty has another brisket recipe. Put the cut of meat in a foil bag with 12 ounces of beer, a bottle of chili sauce, and a sliced onion. Seal the bag so that nothing escapes, and cook in a 325-degree oven for 6 to 8 hours and serve with egg noodles. It's delicious. Well, you know, I'd have to say Czar is probably going to be the go-to on this, although he has an ignorant slot. Um, but he is the grill master, and you are a close second. I am a piker in comparison. So my favorite br brisket recipe is basically whatever you two are making, <laughs> and I'll just get to eat. Uh, but when I do a brisket, I generally do a dry rub on it the night before. I usually get a huge one, like a 16-pounder, 13 to 16-pounder. And I do a dry rub the night before and I, you know, it doesn't matter really what it is. You can just use salt and pepper, kosher salt and fresh cracked pepper. If you want, that's good enough. Then I'll hang it in the smoker for eight hours the next day and usually finish it for a couple hours in um, a foil, you know, a tightly foil wrapped pan with a cup on a rack though, with a couple of beers in the bottom. So you got to get that temperature above 190, you know, for a an hour at least to break down the collagen. So it's all melty good. And you got to get the smoke ring too. So that's, you know, that's my quick recipe for my brisket. But honestly, my first answer is the best one, which is whatever somebody else is making for me. How many tempo burgers could you eat in one sitting? First of all, I have no idea what that is. I assume it's some scary hippie ass vegetarian thing that the people in Kennecut eat. Uh, it's probably like tabbouleh and tofu and grass clippings and weed seeds all mushed into a giant patty. But, you know, it's organically sourced and you can get it at Whole Foods. So I, they, I eat nothing. Tempa burgers, Tempe burgers, like Arizona State? No, not going to eat that crap. I have no idea what that is, and I wouldn't 
eat it if you put a gun to my head, I suspect. So answer, none. So how many tempeh burgers could you eat in one sitting? None. Neva writes in, what happens when you mix Coke and Pop Rocks? Just like Mikey, that little boy who was in the Life cereal ads, your stomach will explode and you will die. So don't do it, Neva. Just don't do it. You get fizzy Coke. Well, Coke and Pop Rocks, that's, that's not really a question, but it is an American tradition. The secret awful truth behind this metamorphosis is pure science and can happen with any carbonated beverage. When you immerse the Pop Rocks into the Coke, the carbon dioxide particles in the Coke are attached to the candy pieces through a process called nucleation, which isn't as complex as it sounds. Basically, tiny molecules of carbon dioxide in the Coke are hooked into um, microscopic indentations and deformations in the candy surface. As the carbon dioxide in the soda builds up around these nucleation points, it gains a lot of upward velocity as the candy dissolves in the acid soda. And this accelerates the fizzing, uh, triggers the coke to release all of the carbon dioxide molecules a lot faster. Uh, Mentos can do the same thing. So you can pick your candy and your soda, and uh, you'll often see the same result. Right to Keep and Bear Arms attorney asks, How much poutine and smoked meat can you eat in one sitting? I don't know. Let's give it a shot. Well, gore tea is not one for poutine. It's a weird 1950s-era Quebecois dish that will likely make your heart stop. But, true story, I went on a meat tour in Lockhart, Texas, where I ate at two separate and awesome barbecue joints there within the span of about two and a half hours. At the first stop, we decided to have no sides, smoke meat only. So I think the answer is a lot. I totally have to disagree with Gort. This is actually what I think. Dr. J can eat all of the poutine and smoked meat in one sitting. All of it. I've never really tried. It's like that, how many, how many licks does it take to the, get to the center of a Tootsie Roll pop? And I hated that damn cartoon owl from the 1970s because he was obnoxious and wore a professor's hat and I'm pretty sure he never went to college. So... I would say that that'd be an interesting experiment to try. We might have tried that at the next Gormagon convention. Maybe, maybe we can get Doc to host one in, in scenic, unnamed state that's in the South, because I don't know if he wants me to say where he's from, but yeah, maybe Doc could host that one. Brian O'Nolan asks, the Gormagons have been stranded on a remote island. Supplies are running low. Who is the first to broach the subject of cannibalism? Who is the first to broach the subject of cannibalism? Pewter, of course. He won't shut up about it. He talks about it at virtually every meal. This is why there's a protocol in place if we ever are stranded on a remote desert island that we immediately kill pewter. And that also solves part of the cannibalism problem and that very few of us would be ever tempted to take a bite out of him because God knows what sort of diseases he's riddled with. The easy answer is the czar. Have you read his posts? Seriously. But the dark horse here is Dr. J. I've been in his operating room. I've seen things. Well, that's Gort's opinion. Uh, I would like to answer Brian O'Nolan, who, who goes by the username Brian O'Nolan. Um, who is the first to broach the subject of cannibalism? It's not going to be me unless I've got a smoker. Uh, it's probably um, cannibalism. huh? Probably, um, well, are the Cho-Cho's on the island? Because that's a given, I think. It's the Cho-Cho's. What makes Brian think that we haven't already broached that subject independently from being on a desert island? 
Zar, Zar, I was already broached it. Zar, what did you say that time we were over at the Leaping Peacock getting lit up? Okay, I've got, uh, I've got another one here from uh, Brian O'Nolan uh, about the castle and wants to know if it's dry moat, wet mist, or a Mott and Bailey design. Actually, it's time, space, compression, rarefaction that surrounds the castle. So you may get close to the castle, but strange things will happen to you when you do. Remember, it's only mostly Euclidean. Interesting question about castle architecture. However, I have to say the answer is both yes and no to all of them. The architecture of Castle Gormagon tends to shift when traveling through time and space, uh, and not entirely of our own controlling or doing. We suspect it may actually be possessed of some sort of innate intelligence of its own, which frankly is a terrifying prospect that we're not keen to look into too closely. Uh, actually, it is a, a very wet moat. Um, it has got fresh water in it, so uh, that means alligators. Uh, we had uh, seawater, that, that of course would be crocodiles. Uh, we, had a, we had a sea serpent of some sort in there at one point, but I think the alligators have eaten it. Uh, it wasn't a very big sea monster. Clearly, Brian needs to keep up with our posts and podcasts as we periodically refer to one of Pooter's favorite pastimes grenade fishing in the castle moat. Yes, it's a wet, freshwater moat. What the Tsar failed to mention was that the alligators were actually really, really big. Bella, uh, with the username at Hella underscore right, is asking, are we actually going to put a band together or are you just messing with me? Hashtag Bella and the Gormagons. It's yeah, we did talk about that. I've got to say Bella is one of my favorites to interact with, although she's kind of stealthy and wanders around. Sometimes she sort of sneaks in and sneaks out like the wind. But yeah, we did talk about like a Josie and the Pussycat style thing, except, you know, I don't really play any instruments. I can sing, you know, I guess I could play the spoons or the washboard, you know, something like that. But a band, hmm, maybe a roving band of people who sack and pillage. We could do that. No, of course we're putting a band together, but you were supposed to get the rehearsal space lined up. So let us know when you got that nailed down, and we'll be there. Uh, one of our readers, Night Train One, who goes by the handle of at knit at rain underscore one. Anyway, he he uh, he wants to know. Uh, I had a post about proper flag etiquette, and I've, actually, I've had several. So he, he's already revealed that, or she that. Uh, this is a person that doesn't really read our site in detail. Uh, says, anyway, uh, which uh, Gormagon had the post about proper flag etiquette? Those flags may need to be removed for a violation. Well, I'm not sure what flags you want removed or what the violations are, but uh, if you do have concerns about any one of our posts, feel free to flag them. A follower uh, with the name of Just Op, uh, who apparently also goes by the name Mulan, I don't know, uh, ask this question, final like no more ever or final window to get a question in and does this use up my question? Uh, I believe actually, Volgi, you answered this one on, on Twitter yourself personally. Um, but he, curiously, we also got uh, another one from uh, Night Train One, who uh, I believe you know goes by the name uh, Nightet Ra In uh, One. Uh, who also asks, why is it the final episode? No, th this is just the final episode of the season. Um, I, I don't know. Is, is, are we not being self-explanatory here? Do one will note that just a has only one question. No, 
Not final like no more ever. No. Not final window to get a question in. Yes, this uses up your question. See Neva for future guidance on asking multiple questions. In concert with Nee Tet Rain's question, this is our final episode this season. Shh. It's as if these folks have never watched a TV show with multiple seasons where they advertise the season finale. We'll be back with season two of Radio Gormagon later this year. Uh, Neva, uh, who uh, also goes by the name at Pi Pandba B. Uh, asks, uh, why is the sky red? Uh, this is due to Rayleigh uh, scattering at, at sunset and in the dawn when uh, particles in the uh, atmosphere tend to uh, deflect the light waves slightly, uh, making them a little bit more prone to red in the morning or from a different angle when the sun's a little bit higher on them, uh, blue, which is why we get blue skies. Uh, the effect can be seen on, on other planets, not just Earth, uh, and that's my answer. While the czar is technically accurate, in this context, the correct answer is that Neva's sky is red due to the retinal damage incurred while looking at various gifts that Pooter has posted on Twitter. Neva, I love you to death, but I got to tell you, you might want to check your GPS because I think you're on Mars. <laughs> and we have a late entrant question from Spooky Snarky Skeleton at Fiskosaurus Rex. What does God need with a starship? I was unaware he had one. So I would ask you to direct that question to him. Add so Milk asks, asks, what is the methadone equivalent for Gormagon podcast addiction? Good question. I don't know. Perhaps playing Bartok albums at 78 RPM until they sound like circus music? Oh, I like this guy. Add so with Milk. Uh, he goes by Palimpsest, man. And I, I got to tell you that Palimpsest is one of my favorite words and has been since I was a little czar. Uh, that's easy. That would be the Liao drug. Uh, which is a big fan of Olgi. Uh, like methadone, it's actually worse than the original uh, addiction. Uh, so I don't actually recommend that you uh, stop listening to our podcasts because the Liao drug is much worse. But if you're absolutely determined, uh, see Dr. J and he will write you a prescription on the way out. Uranium One, that's good shit, man. Thank you, Czar. As the only prescriber amongst the Gormagons, I guess I'm the most qualified to explain what the methadone equivalent for Gormagon podcast addiction is. We could take two approaches to this. The first approach would be to give you a less potent version of the Gormagon's podcast. And I would say Married to the Games is the closest to that. What that podcast involves is uh, a bunch of middle-aged Gen X married men who like to play video games doing video game reviews and talking about their families. It's a little bit more public than ours is, and one of the one of the podcasters is a dear friend of mine, but they do a pretty good job if you're interested in video game reviews. Now, if you're looking for an antidote, sort of the anti-Gormagons podcast, I would say uh, the Doctor Who Verity podcast is the way to go, because you have six progressive women from, from Canada and some other places talking about Doctor Who episodes, and getting all underneath his eye about it. So you might go through the DTs listening to it, but their voices are melodic. I hope you find that helpful. 
there really is none. It's 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 so unique a drug combination that it really stimulates very different parts of your brain. You know, it's the dopamine effect of listening to a podcast is phenomenal. It's just a cascade reaction. You can't get enough of it. So I, you know, we could get we could come up with a methadone like thing, but it might kill you. I mean, that's sort of you know the dopamine withdrawal once you stop listening to our our podcast. Even if you try to substitute something else in, like you know something from NPR, which is, you know, somnolent, just you know, makes you want to go to sleep because they all talk like this. Um, you know, it's just not going to be the same. So you just have to keep listening to the podcast, really. You can't, you can't get it. Once you're hooked, you're hooked, and it's, you're never getting off it, or you will die, mostly because Zara will hunt you down and kill you. But you will die. Pooter person or pewter person with a trademark sign on their name Asks, why is Pewter dropping the apostrophe and using my nickname? Dropping the apostrophe? Because I'm lazy. I mean, I don't do it on purpose. And Pewter is, has been my nickname for a long time. It's short for Ghetto Pewter. That originates from the fact that of the original three, the, you know, Gormagons from back in high school time, I think one of my famous quotes was, why would I ever learn to type? I'm going to have secretaries to do that for me, which never really panned out for me. So it wasn't such a good thing, but... It, I, you know, Gort could hop in and if he wanted to, maybe we can ask him at some point too. But my recollection of the story was that I had a computer at one point without a sound card and Gort and Volgi made so much fun of me having the ghetto computer that it just stuck. The name sort of stuck. And the other thing is I'm a Luddite. I don't really like technology that much. Uh, I find it dehumanizing. Um, no more dehumanizing than what I write, but it's still dehumanizing. Uh, and it, that's where it really came from. But I don't purposely use anybody else's name, you know, such as it is. I don't know which drives me more crazy, dropping apostrophes or using open single quotes as apostrophes. Either way, man, just want to punch through a wall. Uh, one of our favorites, Schultze, writes, what's it like to meet Muffin Bear in person? I didn't even know what the question was going to be. And I knew I was going to lead my answer with, first of all, I have to start talking about how awesome Muffin Bear is. She was great. It was, it was one of the most fun experiences I've ever had. Um, honestly, uh, it was a situation where her personality, Muffin Bear's personality just lit up the room. And it's very unique because she's not, she's a very, very communicative without using words. She uses her eyes and expressions and you know what she's thinking. And she just is so joyful for the limited time I saw her, there was contagious. And I'm not a joyful person. You know, none of this stuff is easy for me to be happy about or to smile. And she made me smile and um, she made me happy, which is a rare thing. So it was a good thing. And that's what it's like. If, if she can melt my cold black heart, then and she's doing something right. Brian also asks, why do we have pinky toes? The reason we have pinky toes is because natural selection has not resulted in us having them become vestigial toes and then disappearing nearly entirely. We don't use our pinky toes for much of anything, but having them is not a hindrance. And the one thing people forget about natural selection is not that necessarily that if a mutation is beneficial, it will help the species. It is also that if a mutation is deleterious, it will harm the species. Neutral mutations, like a shriveling up pinky toe over generations, confers neither a benefit 
uh, nor a harm. Therefore, it's unclear what the fate of our pinky toes will be when we move on to becoming Morlocks and Eloy in the far, far distant future. Gore team might be breaking from tradition and providing a real answer here. While we evolved from primates that used the precursors to our fingers and toes to grip and climb trees, we don't need them in that function anymore. However, our feet are designed to help us walk in a tripod-like fashion where the big toe knuckle, the pinky toe knuckle, and the heel create a tripod. Remove one, and when the mandarin is trying to gut boot you, running away might be a little hard with the lack of balance. Well, I've got to say, I have pinky toes because i got to have a place to keep my rings. You know, I, I wear my rings on my pinky toes, like all the hot, all the hot, sexy gormagons do. You know, for once, Peter makes a really, really great point. Uh, Brian, look, I, I don't know what your problem is, okay? I don't know what you got it in for me personally here, but uh, look, you got pinky toes because you got pinky fingers, right? Um, you've got big toes because you've got thumbs. See, there's five at the end of each limb. Um, unless you come a little bit closer, and I might be able to relieve one or more of your limbs of fingers and toes. Brian A, uh, as opposed to Brian V, who's much more definite about it, uh, asks this question, what are ducks for? And uh, I've decided I'm going to answer this one. Uh, ducks are nice. And if you didn't have ducks, uh, I mean, let's be honest here, what objective correlative would you have to compare nice things to it? Like, say, a lady's blue hat. Is it nice like a duck? I think it is. Um, if we didn't have ducks, I mean, what? The czar is wrong, Brian A. And they are not for comparison of beauty. Ducks are for bowling, back to which duck pin bowling can trace its origin. It is the thing of horror having emanated from either Baltimore or more likely somewhere in New England. It's a really good question, I got to say. You know, I have no earthly idea what ducks are for. I mean, they could be the missing link between birds and platypuses, if you think about it. You know, but they would have had to have sex with a beaver. But it's just kind of an odd thing. And, you know, and then they lay eggs, but they got hair, you know, platypuses. So I think it might be the missing link between birds and platypi. Neva asks another one, do fans spin clockwise and who invented clocks? Well, fans spin and the direction can be either clockwise or counterclockwise. Side note, if you have ceiling fans, you usually have a switch on one side to enable this. One mode will push air down under the fan blades and the other pulls air up. Some refer to this as summer and winter modes. The first clocks with escapement mechanism dates back to the 3rd century BC in Greece. Pooter used to use plenty of escape mechanisms in college. Fans spin clockwise depending on which way you're looking at them. And clocks were invented by Ferrash Kluck, the eponym of clock, an Albanian in the 14th century. Go ahead, look it up. So to answer the first question, um, fans spin clockwise if you set them to spin clockwise. Otherwise, they spin counterclockwise. Now, who invented clocks? Leonardo da Vinci invented the clock, and the reason why the clock turns clockwise is because he also invented the first flushing toilet, and the water would go down the drain clockwise. If da Vinci was in Australia when he had done all of this work, because the toilets go counterclockwise there, you would also have the uh, clocks going counterclockwise in Australia. Adso also asks, will there be a Rick and Morty movie? I think I answered this question in tweet format, and it was going to be a live-action Rick and Morty movie. 
and I think it was going to be me starring as Rick and Zar as Morty, but then I think Zar got angry about that and insisted it be the other way, and it, the wheels kind of fell off. And how would you do a live-action Rick and Morty anyway with all that dimension hopping? I mean, it's, it's going to be kind of tough. It'd be like Buckaroo Banzai and uh, its adventures across the eighth dimension, I believe, but a redux, I and mean, it's, it's sort of been done, but, and I don't even know who would play the red and black electrodes. That, you know, John Lithgow's getting up there. It's going to be tough. You know, so I, it's going to be tough sell. But Rick and Morty, I like it better as a cartoon. You know, who who's going to play Rick? Who's going to play Morty? You know, Weinstein could probably find you a little boy, but, you know, that's another whole discussion that we cannot have time for here. And, I, you know, I, I'm not, just not sure it's appropriate to put it, you know, the little boy with Harvey Weinstein. One is from Kieran Eleison. Why is there air? Air is an archaic term for before. Gorty once had to do a report on that word in high school, English class. Oh, sorry, air. Yeah, air is so we can breathe. Next. All right, uh, Kieran has decided he's not done annoying me for the night. Well, air is a medium which can conduct sound, uh, among other forms of energy. Uh, so because it can conduct sound, you're able to hear me read this incredibly condescending uh, answer, uh, just dripping uh, uh, without air, of course, uh, one, you would not be able to hear me. And two, if you had no air, I would personally be a lot happier. Well, it, you know, you'd have to ask the scientist among us, but I always just assume because there is, you know, what else are you going to do? Got to fill the space. You know, you can't fill it with dark matter. We don't breathe dark matter. Um, you know, and air is mostly nitrogen, which is N, which is Nebraska on their sides of their helmet, which also stands for knowledge. <laughs> which is what I don't have on this subject. So I will defer to the scientists. A. Celine, whose handle is actually at Mike 992368861, asks, what the heck is Polish-Lithuanian irredentism? Well, I'm going to have to toss this one over to Volgi because, you know, Volgi is our expert, resident expert on all things Polish and Lithuanian and irredentist. Well, obviously, it's irredentism whose object is Poland or Lithuania. That said, it's a special project of one of our members, Prince Tochmas. See the Visitor's Guide for details. Polish-Lithuanian irredentism is a type of food poisoning. Basically, what happens is Polish sausages or any other hot dog-like uh, sausage, if it sits in the fridge too long before you cook it, gets this iridescent sheen. And the still-to-be-yet-identified pathogen in that iridescent sheen is lethal. The disease was first described in Lithuania after a family of four tragically died from food poisoning from Polish sausages, hence the name Polish-Lithuanian irredentism, because there were iridescent Polish sausages that killed people in Lithuania. That's funny. Uh, I, I would like to answer, uh, Neva, uh, why her hair feels gross the day after she washes it. Um, it could be a mixture of vomit, uh, bodily fluids of other kinds, uh, stale coffee, uh, gochujang, which is a Korean barbecue sauce, uh, any combination of those things. Uh, two days of cheesecake uh, rubbed in um, butter. I think sour cream we found in there one time. Um, these are not good things. These are these can be very foul-smelling things. Czar, is that the Belmede bourbon talking? 
again, Neva, we've had this conversation. First, you're on Mars. Second, you're eating Tempa burgers. And, you know, and third, you know, although I am the sexiest gourmagon, I've got to say, stop rolling around in the dirt outside of your house, and it won't be all that snacky, nasty, gross stuff. Also, I do not recommend you use Crisco as a conditioner anymore because it does attract crows, and crows will attack you and peck your eyes out, and you don't want that. So, short answer, don't put crap in your hair, and it won't feel nasty. Never asks, did you hide one of my clogs? Uh, the answer is probably not. Might have been Dat Ho. Uh, he collects odd things. Or, who knows, Peter might have developed a foot fetish and really likes shoes now. Neva asked, who is your favorite Spice Girl and why? And be specific. Well, the honest answer is that one cannot pick a favorite. Spice Girls are so totes awesome that none are superior. You should have seen the year that the six of us dressed up as the Spice Girls for Halloween. Well, I'd have to say it's um, Posh Spice, now Victoria Beckham, because she gets to nail that hot David Beckham all the time. You know, and she, she, she has succumbed, I have to say, too, you know, in the later in her life to the, um, the curse of the rich white woman, where you, you start looking more and more like Skeletor, like a cross between Skeletor and a praying mantis. They pull your skin back so tight you can't blink, and, you know, your Botoxed up, and your lips are all full of whatever the goo they shoot in there is. I think it's like leftover taco bell grease or maybe some of those refried beans they just shoot right in there so so i would have to say yeah you know victoria beckham posh spice and she's rich she's rich as hell she's got her own fashion line you know again i'm coming back to it i mean nailing david beckham is just the you know high point of my life. mrs pewter loves david beckham hates soccer loves david beckham so i guess that would kind of influence my choice as well i get to be having sex with my wife so that'd be a good thing so who is Dr. J's favorite Spice Girl? Dr. J does not currently have a favorite Spice Girl as only two and a half of them have amounted to much of anything. But back in the day, um, once Dr. J realized what a Spice Girl was, he would probably have to have said Sporty Spice. Probably because back when he was in college, that was his type. I would have to say Angelica Houston, Artemisia Gentileschi, Cardamoms Mobley, Alana Curry from the Thompson Twins, Tony Basil, Nigella Lawson, Ginger Rogers, Princess Jasmine, Pepper Potts, Peppermint Patty, Rosemary Clooney, and of course the lovely Saffron Burrows. Lieutenant Colonel Dan writes in, If all of you actually got together in one place, would time collapse or just the bar run dry? The answer to that question is yes. I think I answered this one in tweet form before I realized we're actually doing a podcast about this. Great guy, good golfer, tall, very tall, and a Michigander. So would time collapse or would the bar run dry? See, and I think I explained this by referencing a singularity. You know, the, the bar where we would all meet would cre you know, create a singularity around it. We would be on the event horizon. So time would slow for us. You know, it, to, to infinitely, you know, it would seem normal to us, but eons would pass and the time it would take us to get a drink for everybody outside this single event and the bar would run dry before obviously because we'd have infinite time so i mean and the supply ships it would you know jesus it'd take forever for them to get there and it's just it'd be a very very difficult thing to do and really without actually having that happen because we don't we, the reason we don't all get together in one place is one we have to have one survivor just in case something happens you know, and two, we don't want to create a singularity. So it's kind of like, what is it, Schrodinger's cat, I guess? 
you know, we could tell you if the bar is dry or if time would end, but we can't tell you both at the same thing, at the same time. By observing it, you'll change it. Well, we get together in one place all the time. Um, now, time collapse is always a risk because of Gort's presence. He is inherently a destabilizing factor to the space-time continuum as a uh, time-traveling robot whose programming may or may not be entirely airtight. Um, and generally, we do just fine uh, on the bar front. It's when the Czar and Pewter head down to the Leaping Peacock that uh, bar tabs and police blotters are both increased. My opinion on whether all six of us are allowed to meet in person, well, except maybe at Summerfest 2018, uh, we cannot allow it, lest the space-time continuum be torn into 17 pieces, three of which would be really sucky. Semi-Sweet D, whose handle is I hate everyone too, asks the invariable question, is a hot dog a sandwich? Excellent question, and one that's never been broached on the internet before. The answer is the same as that is a hyena, a cat, or a dog. Semi-sweet D, just like your semi-sweet, a hot dog is a semi-sandwich. Oh boy, this is going to open a whole can of worms. Gorti is firmly in the camp that a hot dog is a hot dog and exists outside of the then circle that encapsulates sandwiches. Also, while a burger falls within the sandwich species, a burger dog does not. I'm afraid to answer this question, Dee, and I'll tell you why, because I think Mo will kill me if I answer the question. And I don't understand what the big deal is about this whole question. A hot dog is a hot dog. It's like, you know, it's sometimes, as Freud once said, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. It's a hot dog's a hot dog. It's its own thing. It's sui generis. It's, it's unique. It stands alone. It's neither sandwich nor not sandwich. It is in an in-between state. So that's my answer on that. Hot dogs... Sandwich, not sandwich. The question really is, what's in the hot dog that you're eating? I mean, is it lips and assholes? What species lips and assholes? Are there finger parts in it? Like from, you know, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle? Hard to know. So, you, you know, the bigger question really is, what the hell are you putting in your body? More than, what the hell is the thing? Is it the sandwich or not? So, there's the answer that I have for you. D from Wisconsin. I think I have to get a new set of cans. Baby. Damn cartoon elf. God knows what sort of diseases he's riddled with. Compression rarefaction. 